Y'all turn with me to the book of Revelation, chapter 6. Revelation 6. We're going to look at chapters 6 and 7 today. And I know there's a lot of different kinds of people in the room today. There are people today who ordinarily go to other churches who are here because they want to be with their mom today. And they know that their mom enjoys them going to church with them on Sundays. And if you're one of those people, I want to say congratulations. You've figured out, you've cracked the code. Because I, most of the moms I've known would tell me, you know, I don't really want a present on Mother's Day. I just want my kids to be with me. And especially to go to church with me. That would that'd be even better. So you've done a, a good thing. So if your mom is here and you're here with her, she's probably saying, thank you. This is what I wanted. Um, there are other moms here who are saying, I don't know about that. I, you know, raising these kids was hard. I want some bling. I need something, you know, I, I need some kind of payback for this. So you have to figure out which kind of mom your mom is, but uh, make sure you, and there are also people here this morning that are like, oh shoot, it's Mother's Day? Yeah, you still have time. I don't know what's open, but you know, give it a shot. There are also people, and, and this, is, this is true, there are also people here for whom Mother's Day is not their favorite day of the year. And in fact, some folks who didn't come today because of the reasons I'm about to mention. There are people here whose mothers are, are, are separated from them by distance or by death. And it's a hard time to be away from your mom. I mean, one of the things about being a pastor is I'm, I'm never with my mom on Mother's Day. We got to see her yesterday, but it's, it's not quite the same. There are some people in this room and others who weren't, aren't here today who Mother's Day is hard for them because they're women who don't have children. And the way the church often celebrates Mother's Day makes them feel second class. Like they haven't lived up to their, uh, their, haven't, their job description by not having children and that, they, that they're a failure somehow and they're not as, as important. Um, for, to those women, I just want to say, God created you just the way you are and you are who you are in Christ and you, you have a unique part, purpose in His plan. Whether you have children or not, you're just as important. And I hope you feel that way today. And there are people in this room, sad to say, I'm sure, who would say, my, my relationship with my mom is difficult. And so this is a hard day for me too. For everybody who's here, I want you to understand something. Jesus wrote the book of Revelation. He didn't write it. He dictated it to the Apostle John. He, he wrote it to be an encouragement to all of us. He wrote it because there were people living on earth 2,000 years ago in the, in the nation we know as Turkey today, seven churches that were struggling, and the times were about to get even tougher for them, and Jesus gave them this letter as an encouragement, something to get them through. And so I hope that today what you hear is the encouragement you need to get through what you're going through. And if you're not going through hard times now, it'll get you through when they, when they happen, because you'll need this. We've already looked at how last week, uh, we looked at how Jesus is the only one worthy to open the scroll. Remember, there, were seven, there was a scroll with seven seals that represents uh, the, God's plan for the consummation of humanity. And Jesus was the only one who could step out of that crowd, worthy because He was slain for the sins of mankind, worthy to open that scroll and bring to a completion God's plan. Now, Several years ago, about three years ago, one day I got up really early in the morning. This was during a period of my life when I was getting up way before dawn, leaving the house before anybody else was awake. Now I get up at a more civilized hour, it's usually around six. It's still too early, but you know, that's life. It's part of adulting. But so I got up this time and it was, it was very, very early and I staggered into the bathroom and kind of let my eyes adjust. And then I noticed there was a note on the, on the bathroom countertop which meant that sometime in the middle of the night, my wife had gotten up and written something for me, which didn't usually happen. 
And usually she's got really neat handwriting, but this morning it was partially because my eyes were still three quarters asleep and partially because the writing was uncharacteristically messy. I couldn't really read what it said. But then finally, after staring at it for what seemed like several minutes, I read the following words in her handwriting. It said, and I quote, we got a better Puerto Rican. We got a better Puerto Rican. And I was baffled by that. And I, I, I just stared at it for a long, long time. I was kind of late getting off because I was just trying to figure that out. I was thinking, am I dreaming here? Um, and I wanted to wake her up and ask her, ladies, was, should I have woken her? No, no, no. And I didn't. I, I've been married long enough that I knew. So waited till the end of the day when we were both back home. And I said, what was that all about? And she said, well, last night you talked in your sleep. And the only thing I understood was you said, we got a better Puerto Rican. And she said, I got up and I didn't have anything else to write with but mascara. And so that's why it looks so messy. <laughs> and I, man, I puzzled over that for a long time. What on earth does that mean? Because I couldn't remember anything that I dreamed the night before. Maybe I was prophesying that the Astros were going to re-sign Carlos Beltran, you know? <laughs> or Correa, because he's an even better Puerto Rican. I don't know. But... Um, Sad to say, the mystery of we got a better Puerto Rican will never be solved. We'll have to ask the Lord someday, and he'll say, you've been worried about that? So I say all that because if you're reading Revelation along with us, and I hope you are, or if you've read it in the past, you know this book is filled with bizarre images. And I've told you several times, don't even try to picture this in your head. It won't do you any good. You won't be able to do it. Don't kill yourself trying to figure these things out. I don't think that's the point. As we've already said, this book is written for our encouragement. It's written to get us ready for His return. It's written to make us aware that there are bigger things happening than what we can see with our eyes. What we're going to do today is we're going to look at what happens when Jesus begins opening the seals on that scroll. And it's going to get really ugly. And then it's going to get really good. Okay? So let's pick up verse 1 of chapter 6. I watched as the Lamb opened the first of the seven seals. Then I heard one of the four living creatures say in a voice like thunder, Come. I looked and there before me was a white horse. Its rider held a bow and he was given a crown and he rode out as a conqueror bent on conquest. When the Lamb, when the lamb opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come. Then another horse came out, a, a fiery red one. Its rider was given power to take peace from the earth and to make people kill each other. To him was given a large sword. When the Lamb opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come. I looked, and there before me was a black horse. Its rider was holding a pair of scales in his hand. Then I heard what sounded like a voice among the four living creatures saying, Two pounds of wheat for a day's wages, and six pounds of barley for a day's wages, and do not damage the oil and the wine. When the Lamb opened the, fifth, the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come. I looked, and there before me was a pale horse. Its rider was named Death, and Hades was following close behind him. They were given power over a fourth of the earth to kill by sword, famine, and plague, and to kill and, and by the wild beasts of the earth. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and the testimony they had maintained. They called out in a loud voice, How long, Sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood? Then each of them was given a white robe, and they were told to wait a little longer until the full number of their fellow servants, their brothers and sisters, were killed just as they had been. 
I watched as he opened the sixth seal. There was a great earthquake. The sun turned black like sackcloth made of goat hair. The whole moon turned blood red. And the stars in the sky fell to earth as figs dropped from a fig tree when shaken by a strong wind. The heavens receded like a scroll being rolled up. And every mountain and island was removed from its place. Now this is scary sounding stuff and it should be. These are images that are steeped in Old Testament lingo. If you've read the Old Testament, you've heard phrases like uh, the sky rolling up like a scroll, like the stars dropping, like the, the moon turning blood red, like uh, the, the sky turning black in the midday. There's, there's some newer images in here. Uh, the four horsemen of the apocalypse this is the only place they're mentioned. War, famine, pestilence, and death. And yet they refer to things that are talked about in the Old Testament. So the, all of this would have been familiar. And again, I don't think this is supposed to be taken literally. We, we use expressions to, to say something bad is about to happen, like all hell's about to break loose. You ever heard that expression? That doesn't mean when someone says that they believe that the realm of the unredeemed dead is going to manifest itself on the earth. It means bad things are about to happen. And that's what chapter 6 is saying. I don't think literally the stars are going to fall from the sky because stars can't fall onto the earth. They're way bigger than the earth, you see. It's metaphorical. It's saying bad things are going to happen. Terrible things will happen. What, when are we talking about here? Well, there's a couple of options. There are some people who believe a certain, uh, a certain scheme of understanding biblical prophecy says that there's going to be a worldwide rapture of all the people of God. So in an instant, you've probably heard this story, in an instant, suddenly all the Christians, all the followers of Jesus will be gone. They'll suddenly be with Him, and that will, that will be the beginning of a period, seven years or longer, of great tribulation. When the world sees suffering like it's never seen before, the judgment of God will fall upon this earth. At the end of that time, Jesus will return. Other people say, well, wait a second, that can't be right because the book of Revelation never talks about a rapture, never mentions it. Um, you, can, you can find the possibility of it in, in First, First Thessalonians and Matthew 24, but maybe, maybe not. Others think the other way of understanding this is that this is just talking about this is what life is going to be like on earth. Life on earth is going to be hard. Jesus said it himself, in this world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. He didn't promise that things were going to get better. He said, it's okay because I win in the end. I'm going to be raised again and I'm going to come back. But in the meantime, it's going to be hard. And if you go on and read, next week we're going to look at after the seven uh, seals are broken, there, there come seven trumpets. And with each of those trumpet blasts, bad things happen. And then after that, there's, there's seven bowls full of God's wrath. And we'll look at that in a couple of weeks. And each of these cycles of bad things that happen uh, are, are followed by a time of great worship and, and praise of Jesus. And so... The second interpretation of it says, this is just the author of, of Revelation, Jesus himself saying, things are going to get worse before they get better. But then when I get here, things are going to be as better as you can possibly imagine them. They're going to be better than you can possibly uh, hope for. Now, what I want to go back to is verse 9 that we read when it says, he opened the fifth seal and he saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain. So he sees, he sees these martyrs who are in heaven right now looking up at the throne and pleading with Jesus and saying, how much longer, Lord? How much longer until you avenge our blood? How much longer until you bring judgment on this world and wipe out evil? Now that, that's what I want us to focus on today because it tells us three things. 
It tells us, number one, there's, there are going to be people persecuted for the sake of Christ as long as there are people on earth, as long as, as long as this earth exists before Christ returns. And you and I don't really experience that. I know that we're living in a time when religious liberty is being threatened in many ways, and that is a source of concern, but we are miles and miles and decades and decades, Lord willing, from what could possibly, called, possibly be called persecution, like what's being experienced today by Christians in Syria, um, in the Sudan, um, in China, in Cuba, places like that, and throughout the Middle East. And yet, we need to understand that throughout history, it's been that way for followers of Jesus. They haven't known religious freedom. They haven't known peace. They've had to worship behind closed doors. They've had to guard themselves carefully. They've had to know that every day I could die for my faith. This reminds us, this story reminds us of that and, and reminds us we need to be praying for our brothers and sisters. We need to be aware of what they're going through and, and fighting on their behalf on our knees before the Lord. But secondly, and this is good news, it's a reminder that when we die in this life, we go straight to Jesus. We go straight to be with Him. To be absent from the body, 2 Corinthians 5 says, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Notice these martyrs are with Jesus now. They died for the faith on earth and they were with him immediately. They didn't go into the ground. Their bodies did, but not their souls. They didn't go to purgatory. They didn't go to some in-between place. They went straight to be with Jesus. On the day Jesus died, as he was dying, hanging, hanging from his wrists and feet, there was a man dying next to him who repented at the last moment. And Jesus said to him, well, good luck with that. No, that's not what he said. He said, today you will be with me in paradise. Today. Not tomorrow, not someday, not, well, let's hope. Today. That's good news also. That means that your loved ones who died in the Lord are with Jesus right now in a place where there's no sin and no pain. And we can look forward to being with them. But then the third thing, and this is our main focus today, Notice that although these people are in the presence of Christ, right then, they're experiencing what we call heaven, and yet, and yet, they're not content. And yet, they say, there's something more. There's something I'm looking forward to. Lord, how much longer? It's not that there's anything they lack that this world could give them. It's not that they miss playing golf or going antiquing or, or eating steak or whatever. They are in the presence of Christ. They're enjoying things, and yet they know something better is still to come. Our loved ones who died in the Lord are in the presence of Christ, and yet they're looking forward to something. And that something is what we're going to be talking about as we get further and further on in the book of Revelation. But we're going to give you a little, a little sample, a little taste of it today. Now, as we go into chapter 7, the beginning of chapter 7, which we won't read, John hears the command given to four angels to go out and gather the people of Israel. And he hears that, that 144,000 Israelites are, are gathered, and he hears the names of their tribes, and the, and the roll call is called. And so 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes, and 12 times 12,000 is 144,000. And it's an interesting note, if, if you're a real bi biblical scholar, you'll notice it's not like any other listing of the tribes of Israel, because Judah comes first in this list, and he doesn't come first in any of the other lists. And, and Joseph is in here, and he's not in the other lists of the tribes. And Dan is not, and he always is before. So what is that about? We're not going to focus on that, but I think verse 9 answers it. So let's pick up verse 9. Chapter 7, verse 9. After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, tribe, 
people in language standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands. So let me just pause there and say, so just like last week we talked about how John heard, hey, there's the Lion of Judah, and he turned and he didn't see a lion, but he saw a lamb. Well, this week, John hears, hey, there's 144,000 Israelites. He turns expecting to see a big crowd of his fellow Jews and instead sees a massive crowd from every tribe, every race, every color, every language group standing in the presence of God. More people than you can count. Millions upon millions upon millions. And so I think this list of 144,000, that's just a symbolic number. 12 times 12,000, that's a number of perfection. It's just saying a whole bunch of people are going to be gathered before the Lord. Now, for what reason? Let me show you. Verse, verse 10. And they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. All the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. They fell down on their faces before the throne and worshiped God saying, Amen! Praise and glory and wisdom and thanks and honor and power and strength be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders asked me, these in white robes, who are they? And where did they come from? See, we don't know. John doesn't know. He says, I don't know. And he said, these are they who have come out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve Him day and night in His temple. And He who sits on the throne will shelter them with His presence. Never again will they hunger. Never again will they thirst. The sun will not beat down on them nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd. He will lead them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Hallelujah. Now that's, that's describing something that happens at the end of time, not in the middle period that we're living in now. This is, this is, I believe, the great worship service, the great gathering of God's people that takes place when Jesus returns. This is what it talks about in Philippians 2 when it says, every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. And so uh, the reason that, that God calls this Israel is because this is the new Israel. This is the fulfillment of the promise he gave to Abraham. When Abraham was the very first Jew, he said, in you, all nations of the earth will be blessed. And Abraham had no idea what that meant. This is the fulfillment. This is every nation, people from every color, every ethnic group gathered before the Lord and saying, because a man named Abraham obeyed, along came a Messiah named Jesus. Because Jesus died, we're here today. And get this, this, is, this part will blow your mind. If I'm right about that, if that's what this means, and I'm, I'm pretty, pretty sure I am, guess who's in that crowd? You are. If you're a believer in Jesus, you are in this crowd in Revelation 7. You didn't know you were in the Bible, but you are. Revelation 7. You know, Say hi, wave to yourself, okay? This is an exciting day. This is a day when we look back and we say, the Lord has brought us here. And everything He ever promised us, as best we could understand it, it's, it's even better than He said. Even better than we understood. There's no pain. There's no more death. We're reunited with people we, we loved before and we never thought we'd see again. We're, we're in the presence of Christ, the most fascinating and, and wonderful person ever. And we'll never weep again except for joy. And we'll laugh and laugh and we'll, we'll enjoy good food and, and good fellowship. And it's, it's the it's the pinnacle of our existence. And it makes every 
everything we thought we enjoyed in this life seem ridiculous. And it makes all of our, our hatred and our anger and our resentment and our selfishness and our pride and our vanity and all the things that made us weak and small and petty and got in the way of our relationships, all of that will seem like a distant dream, like a nightmare where you get mad at your wife and you say stupid things. You have those dreams too, right? Well, that's what it's going to be like when we're in heaven. We're going to be like, eh, that was a long time ago. That, that doesn't even matter anymore. Because now I'm in the presence of Christ and now I have His character. And now life is what it was always meant to be. But when is that going to happen? And by the way, there's a lot more where that came from. Wait till we get to Revelation 20 and 21. It gets way better. But when does this happen? We don't know. And Jesus has the audacity to say to these martyrs who've lost their lives, and all they're asking for is, hey, Lord, bring us justice. Before one more soul dies, help you know, fix this world. And Jesus has the audacity to say, just wait a little while longer. And that's hard, isn't it? I don't know many people in this room who would say, well, I'm a real patient person. I handle lines and traffic and, and slow-moving people really, really well. Not many of us would say that. Even harder when you're waiting for something really, really nice to happen. Like if, if you've scheduled a vacation and vacation is just... It just never seems to get here. You're, you're looking forward to retirement in a couple of years, and you keep looking at the calendar, and it's like, hey, have the, have the months multiplied? If you're a kid and you're like, hey, when is, when is summer starting? Well, it's a couple of weeks. Well, man, when is it going to get here? When's my birthday going to be here? When's Christmas going to be here? Some of you are like, when's this sermon going to be over? I'm hungry. How can Jesus say, just wait a little while longer? I want to show you something. Because it's hard for all of us. It's especially hard for people who are suffering right now. There are Christians in the Middle East who today will come home from church, see that somebody spray-painted an Arabic word, letter N on their door, which is a sign that says, we know you're a Nazarene. We know you're a believer in Jesus. You better repent or die. You better convert to Islam or die. What is that person supposed to do? How can we tell him to be patient? Or the family that's just buried a child, that's not supposed to happen, but it does. Or the man who's just lost his job and he, he doesn't know how he's going to pay his bills. He can't even go bring himself to go home and tell his wife. He can't look her in the eyes and tell her, here's what we're facing. Or the woman whose husband just walked out on her and she's left with these kids, but nothing to take care of her and, and, and no security and, and, and that sense of rejection. Or the man who's just been to the doctor and the doctor said, you know, we've, we've done all we can for you. We can't treat this anymore. How can we tell people like that? You just need to be patient. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 22 through 25 is written to people who are struggling and who feel like giving up. And I think this is important for us to read too at this moment. Hebrews 10, 22. Let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess for He who promised is faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. Let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but let us encourage one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. Now, real quickly, I want to show you three things I see in that. Three instructions to help us be patient. Number one, he says, draw near to God. Let us draw near to God with a sincere heart. 
He's the source of the living water. You drink from Him, and it becomes a, a fountain bubbling up in you and welling up into eternal life. And, and it splashes on others and gets them full of joy too. He's the bread of life, and you eat of Him, and it satisfies you when nothing else will. And how many of us would have to admit, I just don't do that? Yeah, I believe in Jesus, but I don't feast on the bread of life. I don't, I don't take time in my day to drink the living water. I, I mean, at most, I might, I might say a few quick prayers. I may read a little chapter out of the Bible or a section of a devotional book, but it's like, I'm going to get this done because i got things to do. How many of us actually sit there and say, okay, Lord, how, no matter how long it takes, I need to connect with you this morning because I don't want to face this world without that. Then the second instruction from this passage is draw near to each other. He says, don't give up meeting together. You know what that says to me? It says that even in the first century, there were people who were saying, I don't need to go to church. I got Jesus. I'm saved. I know where I'm going when I die. Why do I need to go to church? I don't even like most of those people. The sermons bore me. The music, it's not my style. You know, there's, my kids are playing. My kids are in baseball. They've got tournaments out of town. I, I, I need to go see my parents. Have you seen how nice the weather is? You know how many people are going to be on the lake today? I can't miss that. There's all these reasons. Even in the first century, there were reasons. Maybe different ones. And God says, Jesus says, don't give up meeting together. Whether you know it or not, you need it. And I'm not just saying this because I like my job. And if you're not here, I don't have a job anymore. Guess what? God's going to provide for me one way or another. I'm not worried about that. God provided for me when my congregation was about 30 people. And he'll keep on providing. So it's not about that. It's about you need to be in the presence of God's people. You need to rub off on them, and they need to rub off on you. And as he says here, you got to spur one another on toward love and good deeds. And you can't do that if you're not gathering together amongst God's people. And that's why we do this. And that's why. And that's why right now I'm, I'm thankful when I get you one Sunday out of four, but I'd love to see you say, I'm going to prioritize being in God's house. And I'm going to teach my kids that the best thing we can do is if, if humanly possible, we're going to be there. 8.30 or 11, I don't care. Be amongst God's people. And then the third thing he says to us to help us get there is live in hope. He says, let us, let us walk in hope and all the more as you see the day approaching. As you see the day approaching. You know what that means? The day. He just says the day. He's talking about the day of Christ. In the Old Testament, it's called the day of the Lord. There's a day coming when Christ will return. And we want to be ready for that. And the closer we get to it, the harder life is going to get. So the more we need to walk in hope. He's saying, think about that day every day. Now, how many of us do that? How many of us, honestly, how many of us only think about the afterlife when a loved one dies? Maybe once in a while. Scripture tells us to think about it every day. Colossians 3 says, set your minds on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of the throne above. Now, I know your mom told you when you were little, a watch pot never boils. So if your, your friend is coming over and you sit and you watch out the window for your friend to come over, it's going to take forever. I know, and that's true for most things. It's not true about the return of Christ. The more you watch for his return, the better your life will be. The better your days will be. And I'll tell you why. When... when when I was a junior in college, I proposed to the woman who is now my wife. That meant 
that uh, my, I knew, by the way, good and well, that her dad, there's no way he was going to let us get married until we were both graduated and had jobs, which I agree with that decision. So why did I propose with a year and a half to go? Well, quite simply, it was entirely selfish on my part. Um, y'all have seen her, right? I mean, she's, she's good looking. She was almost that good looking back then. And everybody noticed. Everybody noticed. And she went to a big church, and there were a lot of guys there, richer, taller, better looking than me. And I could either put a rock on her finger, or as, as it actually turned out, a pebble, um, or I could wear a sign that said, I own a shotgun and 40 acres, and you won't be missed. One way or another, that's true, by the way. So I put the rock on her finger. And you know what that did for me? That meant that every day, every single day, between that day and May 23rd, 1992, every day I had something to look forward to. Because even if it was a lousy day, I'd say, well, I'm glad that day's over, and now I'm one day closer. We have, as believers in Christ, something even better, something eternal to look forward to. And that means that if you live in hope, Every day of your life, every day of your life, there's something redeeming. Even if it's the worst day of your life, you get to the end of it and say, never want to relive that, but I'm one day closer to being where I've always wanted to be. And nobody can take that away from me. And I know, I know that it's hard to live that way, and very few of us do, but just for a moment, think about how different your life would be if you did. Just for a moment, think about how different your life would be if you were really living for eternity and how you'd spend your money differently and how you'd spend your time differently and how your prayer life would be different and how your relationships would be different and how you'd invest yourself in people, knowing that everybody you know is going to spend eternity somewhere and how you'd do good deeds because you'd know that everything you do for God now makes an eternal impact. How different would your life be if you weren't trying to build an earthly kingdom or make yourself happy now, but invest in eternity? And I also know, I also know there are people who are here saying, and nobody would say this out loud, but they're saying, I'm just afraid to do that because what if it's not true? I believe in Jesus. I believe he died for my sins. I believe he rose again. But what if, what if all this stuff about heaven, he's just saying it to make us feel better? What if what if it's not there? What if it's not as great as he says? I have a friend who several years ago was one of the best college football players in our country. In fact, he holds a record today that still stands. Um, and he was destined, everybody thought, to play in the NFL. He was going to make millions and millions of dollars. And one day, I think the third game of his junior season, he shredded his knee. I mean, just everything blew up. And it looked like his career was over. And all that money and all, that, all those dreams that he'd been dreaming of since he was a little boy were probably not going to happen. Now, my friend had a, had a girlfriend who was from his hometown, who had moved to Houston at great sacrifice just to be close to him. And if ever there was a time when she was going to say, okay, I've been there, done that, it's been real, I'm going home to mom, 
it would have been then. When all the dreams of being married to an NFL star were gone, now would have been the time for her to say, I'm moving home and finding somebody else. But she didn't. In fact, she would go over to his apartment every day and, and take care of him. She'd get him food and get him water and get him medicine and just spend time with him. And once he recovered fully, he proposed to her and he married her. And he's in the NFL today, happy ending there. But he said, he said to his friends, he said, she took care of me when anybody else would have left. So I knew she was the one for me at that point. There was no question after that. I tell you that to say this. Jesus looks at those martyrs who are yearning for justice and says, just wait a little longer. If I said that, if you said that, they would say, that doesn't help me. But Jesus says it. And Jesus is the one who died for them. And Jesus is the one who rose again the third day. And Jesus is the one who never once failed a promise. Jesus is the whole reason they're in heaven. He paid the highest price to redeem their souls. There's no way they're going to doubt Him. They know that He means it. And therefore, because Christ died for us, and therefore, because He rose again, everything we've read about here is true. Everything we will read about is true. There is coming a day when everything we hate about this world will be a distant memory. And everything we love about this world will seem like child's play compared to what God brings to us. That day is coming. And it could be today. And if that doesn't make you excited, I'm serious when I say this. I'm not trying to get applause. If that doesn't make you excited, you need to ask the Lord, what on earth is wrong with my heart? If it does make you excited, I think now's time to say amen.